Today we're going to be looking at Alice in the Cities from 1974. It's written and directed by Wim Wenders, and it's the story of Philip, a German journalist who finds himself the unwitting guardian of nine-year-old Alice as they travel from New York City back to Germany via Amsterdam. Or, as the Oxford History of World Cinema tells us, it examines the nexus between perception, experience and estrangement. And there's a really misleading I, I kind of looked it up one of the first synopses that came up says it's about Philip who meets a young woman who's just left her husband at an airport and is surprised when their relationship deepens into something else. That's just completely that's about, misleading. That's got to be a different film or somebody that's blagging it after yeah. hearing, hearing an or, outline or, in the pub. Or trying to avoid the entire angle of an older man looking after a child. Yeah, yeah. There's quite a few um, when you're sort of researching and reading up on it, there's quite a few reviews that make a point of it not being paedophilic. Yeah. It's, it's a very strange sort of, this is definitely not a paedophilic film. It's, yeah, yeah it's, as if you have to tread carefully. <laughs> Any film around. that has a child in, you have to make a... A child a, with a, an adult, you have to you have to put firm barriers around it and, mm-hmm. and say there is no sexuality in this film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but that is one of the most beautiful things about the film is that it's definitely not yeah. <laughs> anything like that. So this is your first experience of it, isn't it? Yeah, it is, yeah. Uh, a friend of mine, Chris, recommended it and like he's a musician and doesn't, you know, he watches movies but doesn't really kind of go off on one about a particular film. But when he spoke about this, his face lit up and he ran off to get the DVD and like thrust it as if he'd been the guardian of this DVD waiting to pass it on to someone. Mm-hmm. I'd never heard of it. Um, and when I mentioned it to you, you said that you'd kind of seen it a few times and have a... Yeah, well, it was on my short list. We both made up lists on our phones, didn't we, of things, contenders mm-hmm. for this. And it was sort of in there in my list, but it wasn't something I was pressing on you All to right, do. Okay. Um, so it's like, yeah, absolutely. Let's, let's do it again. Yeah, I mean, what a revelation. <laughs> I feel like I've been really touched by this film. It was a really nice surprise. Like, just, yeah, it caught me on the back foot. I wasn't prepared for... You know, I've seen some Wim Vendors films, and, you know, I've, I find quite a lot of them difficult I think I saw Until the End of the World when it came out as my first Vin Vendors film and just like (laughs) I I think I gave up on a a VHS you know at a point when I was really trying to be open minded and absorb stuff and I felt the same way about Paris, Texas as well Uh, but I think I saw it too young I saw uh, Far Away So Close and Wings of Desire and enjoyed those yeah so you came to it from quite quite late period Vendors which is well I mean I guess it's it's sort of middle of his career now by today's standards but yeah i mean i don't i don't want to go into it's effectively the same story as a lot of things that we do for the podcast it's something that i saw a long time ago mm-hmm. i saw paris texas first on tv and without knowing anything about it quite liked it mm-hmm. and then picked up an ex-rental vhs it's one of the first ex-rentals i got when we got a vhs player because uh, i was kind of interested in it and then by chance film four did a vendor season oh yeah okay and i caught this and a couple of others but i wasn't being you know disciplined enough and i missed a load which i instantly regretted mm-hmm. later and had to kind of track things down on on x rental copies again but this is probably the second vendors film i saw it made a big impression so it quickly became one of my favorite films mm-hmm. uh, early in my life when i hadn't seen many films yeah sure and it's kind of been on the shelf. I think I must have watched it a couple of times on tape, but it's been on the shelf on DVD and on Blu-ray since then. And I really wanted to go back to it to see if it was still one of my favourite films because, you know, you, I have a, a vague memory of what it was like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. haven't seen it for decades. How do you feel, like... Still one of my favourite films. It's really films. good, isn't it? <laughs> I, uh, I was saying before, just before we went on air, that um, Chris lent me his DVD and about five minutes in I was like, 
oh man I wish I had the blu-ray of this <laughs> you know that Robbie Muller's photography yeah. and it was all sort of grainy and pixelating and it was really frustrating so I think I'm going to pick up a blu-ray just for like archival purposes yeah. just to sort of have it in the house yeah yeah, it was wonderful to see it again, and you know, having to watch it twice, sometimes you're just kind of watching it and making technical notes and, mm-hmm. and just trying to quantify your responses to different things and yeah, things that you liked. Yeah, critical and analytical. But second time around, I was finding new things in it again and oh, making, yeah, okay. you know, and as well as just revising what I thought before. Yeah. <laughs> I really, really enjoyed it again. Uh, yeah, I really loved it. You know, I love, like, the way it looks, its pacing, you know, the fact that there aren't any kind of huge moments that it just sort of gently eases through these mm. kind of what would be big moments yeah you just sit with the characters all the way through I, I love that mm. it's really sort of disciplined it's disciplined in its relaxation yeah it? that's it yeah yeah I really love that about it <laughs> when I was just discovering world cinema when I was like 18, 19 yeah, yeah, yeah. There were the big names that happened to have had seasons on Film Four, so I was, you know, really looking into Tarkovsky and really oh, looking okay. into Vendors. And um, what about like this German New Wave? Did you, have you seen much? No, I mean I've seen some. Her- Herzog, I've yeah. seen some Herzog. Um, I'm not a huge fan of Fassbinder. Oh yeah, okay. I mean, I can appreciate it, but it doesn't it doesn't sit comfortably mm. for me. Have you seen World on a Wire? No, I I have it on the shelf, but oh, yeah. I haven't got round to it yet. Like so many things, life is just not giving me the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah all of these filmmakers get lumped into one category yeah, but they yeah. all have very very different identities in their filmmaking yeah. but I, watching this again you can see his own identity in this compared to you know this is the first quintessential vendors movie yeah he said that didn't he it was his fourth film as a director but mm. his first feature film that he felt like he'd made yeah and it's it absolutely kind of crystallizes all his obsessions at the time when you put him in the context of post-war germany i mean the whole reason that that kind of new wave of filmmakers sprang up in the 70s is kind of a a response to the fact that post second world war germany was afraid to have a culture uh it had just been hollowed out and because so much of the culture of the 20th century had been kind of co-opted or twisted by the nazis or ground underfoot there was just this cultural void in germany and, and the inability to kind of allow themselves to, to have a culture. And uh, and it was only like Vendor's generation when they came of age noticed that. And Vendor's was very, very critical of how American culture had kind of completely colonised Germany. He used to work in film distribution at one point and it was just American movies, American movies, American movies and how to sell them. There was no indigenous German film culture until these guys came along in the late 60s. And there's there's a lot of that in his movies. There's there's kind of references. You know, it's it's kind of a, a bittersweet thing. It's it's a love hate thing. He loves American movies, good American movies, and he, he's, there's a lot of references to them in his films. There's a nice interview with him on the DVD where he's talking about his favorite movie being The Young Lincoln, and for him that was kind of you know like a almost a religious experience with such an important film, but having seen it on tv in the states where it'd been interrupted every three or four minutes with a commercial break is that the film that's showing in the motel yeah that's right i read somewhere else that the film is loosely based on a book which also features the film quite heavily so yes and that's why there's a reference towards the end with john ford dying yeah yeah that's it (laughs) you know we're just talking about influence of american culture but also you know the character of philip is in the states we see him in the early part of the film exploring the states you know doing this you know kind of early 70s photojournalist road trip where he's taking polaroids and trying to process the american experience 
but is unable to make a distinction between the landscapes that he's passing through, like it's all one thing. Mm. Just as a kind of petty criticism, I would say that if you're going to explore any country, then don't drive along the highways. So if you're exploring in England, you wouldn't look at the motorways and the service stations and as an example of what that country's culture is. Yeah, I mean, that's a fair point, but I also think maybe that the American experience is kind of like that. You know, it is mm. the Route 66, you know, this idea that you're free to travel... I think I'm being a bit petty there because he does. There is a line later in the film when he says, "Once you get out of New York City, everything is the same." Mm-hmm. I think he has done more exploring than than we see. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, he's been on the road for four weeks in film term. Should we talk about the cast a little bit? Yeah, the cast and crew, because this is kind of a, a cast and crew that vendors work with a lot throughout the seventies. Yeah, it's a sort of who's who of German cinema. Well, yeah. I say who's who is Robbie Muller and. Rudiger Vogler. Mm. Vogler? How do you say that? Vogler? I don't know, but that's my guess. It was really nice watching this again to see um, Philip Winter, see Rudiger Vogler. He was... There's a thing when you're about 20 and you see people who are a bit older and you think, I'd quite like to be like that (laughs) when I'm older. Just, I liked his clothes, Mm. which looked great at the time, and I liked his hair, and I liked everything about his demeanour. Yeah, sure. Um, And his kind of introspection really appealed to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah coming back and watching it again I'm still kind of in that mode I was yeah. like yeah this, this is really, it's really cool <laughs> yeah he sort of balances out that the existentialism of his sort of lonely journalistic pursuit at the beginning with the sort of grumpy reality of being charged with a child for mm. a week or two yeah he's definitely yeah, I really liked it I liked seeing him on screen it felt really authentic and genuine I like I like both sides of his of his character arc I like I liked him when he was kind of wandering around completely disconnected from himself and starting mm-hmm. to lose you know lose as it says he's lost his sense of self mm-hmm. but then I also like him starting to thaw throughout the throughout the movie in his little little moments of humor and yeah yeah I think one of the interviews was saying he goes from living in his in his own mind to having to live in in the moment like that Alice mm. forces him to live in the moment and to be conscious in the moment he had something about him not even having time to take a photograph when that's all we've seen him doing yes. you know, he's constantly got his camera out and then yeah. as soon as he has this child in tow he has to just focus all of his energy on that when I looked uh, at Yellow Rotlander who played Alice. Alice yeah she didn't really continue much with the, the acting she did another thing for far away so close and then I think she's a doctor now yeah well I mean that's true of a lot of child actors they kind of do it but they have other interests yeah yeah Yeah, Yeah. but just that she's so good I just expected her to be like the doyen of uh, German (laughs) cinema and you know an old kind of dame and yeah, it's a remarkable. I say, perf- I guess it's a performance, but it just feels like a person on screen, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. It's just it's so real and yeah, alive. And although didn't she play the old dame in Grand Budapest Hotel? Is that her? I don't know. No, yeah. it wasn't. It was Lisa. You know the woman that plays Lisa. Oh, Lisa Kritzer. Yeah, she's the old dame in the Grand Budapest Hotel. Oh, okay. She had a. She was well. She was a star in Germany throughout mm-hmm. the seventies, and I think she and Vendors were a star couple before they. Oh yeah. Okay he broke it off with her to go and live and work in America and it was mm-hmm. it was quite a media sensation at the time <laughs> that they because they were Germany's golden couple oh right okay um, movie yeah couple. she's fantastic as well actually she's great in this she just sketches in that flakiness within one mm. scene doesn't she yeah yeah <laughs> and then you've got the the crew you've got um, Robbie Muller yeah Robbie mm. Muller and I think he's I think he's editor Peter Pritzgoda yeah yeah Vendors had already worked with him on, on at least two films I think and yeah I mean this is his this is his crew for forever really up until, up until the end of the 90s yeah well but, 91 is the last time Muller and Vendors worked together yeah they had a big falling out over until the end of the world mm. 
I remember that being pitched as a science fiction film and being quite excited to sit down and watch it, you know, as my first vendors. And I think I'd, I'd sat through, do you remember that movie Slipstream? Yeah. With Mark Hamill. And I, was I like, remember oh. it existing. <laughs> yeah. Well, I remember like trying to watch a few like alternate sci-fis and just like coming a cropper with Until the End of the World. So mm. I'm not surprised that a few relationships were fractured after that experience. It's, yeah. it's pretty, it's my, a slog. Mine was. Uh, I mean, we were talking about it earlier, and I'm not going to go into it, but it certainly it was it shot my Wenders fandom in the foot that movie. Oh, yeah, okay. And it's being pitched these days. It's been re-released in its full five-hour director's cut. No way. Yeah, Criterion have just brought it out, and I think there's a release planned in the UK, and it's being sold as as a, a masterpiece. And it honestly isn't. Do you think even it might in transform its... into something sublime at five hours? Well, that's that's the pitch. That that it 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 was always the understanding that the distributors would make a three-hour cut, but that the five-hour version be the vendor's preferred version and and it never got to be assembled until recently because it didn't make enough money off its theatrical distribution but um i i don't see how it can be anything more than two hours more of the same thing which is yeah, already yeah. too much yeah yeah amazing back catalogue of movies through the 70s and 80s yeah and the career of robbie muller you know mm. when you look at i had to write them down because there's so many like impressive <laughs> directors films for bogdanovich von trier Sally Potter, Jim Jarmusch, John Schlesinger, Babette Schroeder, Michael Winterbottom, and Alex Cox. That's a pretty good resume. Yeah, I've forgotten about all the Jim Jarmusch stuff, and I suppose that's one of the defining aspects of those movies. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You you can see the foundation in this for those black and white, you know. Well, yeah, I was watching this again, and I was thinking, I haven't seen this since since the early 90s and I think I'd seen Stranger Than Paradise a few years later oh yeah okay and you think of like the, the, the long takes and fades to black in that yeah, yeah it yeah. wasn't a Robbie Muller shot film it was Tom DeCillo I think shot, shot that one but yeah you can definitely see the, the vendors Muller Mm-mm. experience going on there mm-hmm. can't you and it is, it's another road movie as well, isn't it? At yeah, this yeah. Time with and Down by Law. It's interesting you mentioned the fade to blacks because I was surprised at how prolific they are throughout this film, aren't they? Mm. They're like every, every, almost every other scene just ends with a fade to black. It's, it's, well, it's quite it's, nice. It's, it's quite really nice. It's really sort of old-fashioned and hypnotic. Yeah. And and it's nice early on when, when he's kind of travelling and, and the scenes are short and disconnected. And it's like it's basically like having a dot 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 at the end of a sentence. Yeah, or like just, just closing your eyes for a long yeah. <laughs> blink, and you know, there's, yeah, there's something really nice about it. My favourite one was, um, I think it's when he's driving from Carolina, and uh, you just kind of come up to a rainstorm. You oh kind yeah, of view yeah. through the windscreen, and, and it's raining heavily, and then you just fade to black, and mm-hmm. it's just it's just a moment along the way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a nice sequence where he's driving, and he just closes his eyes as well. <laughs> it's sort of the, yeah, that's kind of what yeah what it feels like to be him. I think in that moment. Mm. This is. I noticed this has got um, music by Can, who I guess were Germany's coolest group at the time. Although it's a very, very simple piece of music, and I, yeah, I sense like a half day session. And well, like, that's that's what it was. I think that they he knew. So I think the editor had directed a film, a about, concert film, yeah. yeah, and they went into the studio and were just like, "Look, we need some music." what can you do mm. and they knocked it out in about half an hour I think it was just one of those <laughs> like we've got this What's they were like what's the film about and uh, they said because they couldn't see anything and then they just put this piece together yeah. and then it's looped like six or seven times throughout the film and apparently great, it doesn't even exist as a separate track anywhere there's 
so you, you'll never be able to hear it <laughs> unless you watch the film because it's it's in the mix and that's the only place it exists. Oh, that's brilliant. And it's a really good piece of music because obviously the sort of looping aimlessness works really good, really well at the yeah, beginning. Yeah, of course. But then towards the end, there's, there's like a synthesizer sound that sort of sounds a yeah, bit yeah. like a zither and sounds really European. Yeah, yeah. So it works really well for the kind of German and, mm. and, and Dutch locations. Mm-mm. So we're going to, again, we're trying to avoid doing the scene-by-scene scene thing because it's too exhausting and exhaustive. And as, <laughs> yeah. as you said just now, we tend to lose the, the bigger themes when you're talking about... Well, there's so many films that we watch where it's a pleasure just to look at each scene and each performance within the scene and shots and transitions mm. that it's easy to get lost in the, the technical aspects and not talk so much about the... The big picture. Yeah, what's the film about? Yeah. You know, why does it exist? Why does it move us? Why does it touch us so deeply? So we're going to break it into, I guess, three acts and talk talk our way through them, um, but see if we can talk more about themes and stuff. Yeah, I mean, this has a very traditional three-act structure, doesn't mm. it? We have the first act is Philip alone. In America. Yeah, and then act two is Philip and Alice meeting and their sort of prickly journey and act three is their bonding yeah yeah you want to be careful with the words that you choose to describe it you know their relationship their you know their friendship yeah act three is about their friendship and them accepting each other as human beings and respecting each other i think so if we start in america we see philip in carolina he's is he at surf city which is north carolina I didn't. I didn't realize until watching it this time. I always thought he was within New York State. Yeah, I thought it was Coney Island or or Rockaway or somewhere like that. But mm. yeah, I think he's much further south, isn't he? Part of the reason that Vendors got compared to Scorsese at this stage in his career is because he was doing that thing, which was very popular then amongst that generation, of including explicit references and snippets to and samples from their favourite bits of pop culture as part of their movies. So what you think him singing under the boardwalk is... Singing under the boardwalk is the first example, and then um, I know it's a common thing to use music to underline the mood of the characters, but then mm. if you notice w- when he's in a diner a few minutes later, Vin Benders has a cameo. Yeah, he's the right. other person there who puts a song on the jukebox and the song's first line is I feel, so de- I feel depressed, I feel so bad, <laughs> which kind of like, it's one of Vendor's favourite songs and it nails oh, the right, character okay. at that point. Yeah, yeah, sure. It's that sort of kind of like intertextual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thing. And there's um, they get away with it though. Th- there's a kind of like a, f- a film sampling thing, well as well, where you use either references to or, or direct quotes from movies that you like that you want to comment on the action in your movie. Like I'm thinking of. I think there's a section in Who's That Knocking at My Door, Scorsese's very, very first, where there's snippets from westerns in there, uh, just like, you know, gun, gun, gunfighter poses. And mm-hmm. it's, it's using that sort of snippets, you know, not just in the background on television, but actually cutting things in and using references. Yeah, yeah. And there's a really clever bit later on where Philip is watching TV in the hotel uh, with Lisa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's He's like a, it's quite stroby montage of TV images, isn't it? Yeah, but there's a there's a really clever bit which I only noticed the second time around this time. Lisa's explaining what's been going on in her life and, and her relationship with her partner. And, and she says, uh, he said everything would be fine once we had a place in New York. And then you get a cut to the TV and it must just have been some random footage that they shot off a of TV whilst they were there. But there's a little bit of a commercial saying, come on over over to our house used over that and then uh, she says a few minutes later she says you know he he said he'd rather kill himself and use shots of kamikaze pilots on TV and it's that sort of like pop culture referencing and bringing all that stuff in which Mm -hmm. was which was quite a thing in the 70s yeah yeah you see a lot of that in Scorsese and a lot of that in in Vendor's movies yeah 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 it's cool there I think yeah it's good, good stuff 
There's but, a nice bit in that sequence where Philip's talking about American TV just becoming a commercial for the status quo. Like everything that you see is about reassuring you that this is how it's supposed to be. I mean, he's the alter ego of Vendors at that point. Hmm. Vendors had this kind of love-hate relationship with American culture. I think it, it must just have been Vendors' experiences being written into the film. Yeah, yeah. So Philip's been travelling America with the intention of uh, writing an assignment piece about about travelling in America, uh, but he's been a- unable to write anything or to finish the story, and he's simply been taking hundreds of Polaroid photographs on a prototype Polaroid camera. Yeah, it's pretty pretty new at this point, isn't it? I mm. think it's only probably a year old, the prototype. prototype. Is it the... Yeah, according to documentary, um, it was it was a prototype. It hadn't even been released commercially at that point. Oh right, I I thought it had. I thought there was you know, because I think at this point it's already on um, Star Lab. I think it's up in up in space, being used to yeah. photograph sunrises and things. So. I can I can only take Bender's word for oh, it. Yeah, okay. I guess when they were shooting the movie, it was um, apparently this this. Boxy metal camera that he's got was a prototype they got from Polaroid. Oh yeah, okay. Maybe it's um, the one that has this sort of solar thing on the front, so that you don't have to focus. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think the seventy-one, seventy-two issue. One of the things I've always thought watching this is how unlikely it is that you'd be able to take hundreds of Polaroid photographs because I remember how expensive the films were. <laughs> yeah, it cost a fortune for just like ten mm. prints. Yeah, it still does now, actually. Yeah. <laughs> And he's shooting off hundreds of them throughout yeah, the film. Yeah. Um, this is somebody with no money. So yeah, so uh, Philip's... It's a commission for a magazine, isn't it? The job that he's doing. Yes, for a German magazine. But he's been driving and thinking and and losing himself and himself and becoming disconnected mm. from his sense of self. So the whole first act is basically laying that out. And it lays it out quite explicitly as well. There is a scene later on where he goes to visit a German friend stroke ex-girlfriend and <laughs> immediately launches into a long explanation of his of his current state of his mind existential crisis yeah, yeah to this poor young woman who clearly has is just has no time for him anymore yeah she's definitely over there yeah their liaison isn't she and He's, she he starts getting undressed doesn't he to sort of <laughs> settle in for the night and she's like yeah no i don't want you to stay <laughs> yeah, yeah let's see you're not staying she kind of handily explains to him and to us what's been happening to him in 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 very kind of straightforward philosophical terms yeah, yeah. which is which is worth kind of quoting it's a shame we can't do audio quotes because it's in german but philip says i got completely lost i became estranged from myself and angela says to him slightly paraphrasing here he's lost his sense of self long ago he's always needed proof that he still exists in stories and experiences that's why you keep taking pictures as evidence it was you who saw these things surely that's been benders the film yeah. <laughs> yeah right right <laughs> Yeah, there's a nice line a little bit earlier on where he's taking Polaroids and he says that they they never look like the thing that you're looking at. They, yeah, they, they never, never look, look right. The way they yeah. Seem. yeah, there's something frustrating about that. That he's trying to capture a moment in reality and it always looks it's not his experience. Artificial. Is it? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, he's kind of a tourist. The opening section in America is fascinating in lots of ways. Partly as a time capsule of how America looked at the time. Yeah, it's one of those things that I feel so much his intent, you know, to show that it's homogenised and that it's, uh, you know, it can be soul-destroying, but it also looks so attractive and That's so cool. Thing. That's exactly what I wrote. I'd it's... love to have, like, a muscle car, you know, an old battered muscle car and cruise along those and just eat and drink the same thing every breakfast and yeah. stay in the motels. And That's it. It's the irony of... Even in black and white, you can feel the neon and everything, can't you? Yeah. 
I got a note here. It's like it's the irony of these dismal-looking roads and motels look so fantastic once yeah. you photograph them. Yeah, that's it's, it. it's like you know photographs by Eggleston and William, yeah, William yeah. Christenbury, those mm-hmm. sorts of things. You know, it's it's seedy surroundings, seedy environments, but they look so photogenic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And with you know, it's a curse, isn't it? Yeah, and with the passing of time, with this looking like a, a fascinating time capsule of another place that mm. you want to go back and explore. Yeah, exactly. And when he reaches New York as well, mm. it's got that really great New York street sound mm-hmm. in the background, you know, all the sirens and noise and Yeah, it's really good. Oh, it's fantastic. There's a couple of lovely moments when he meet, reaches New York and there's just a shot of the dollar bill out of the window as he comes up to the toll booth mm. and then when he's in the, the tunnel it's just two Greyhound buses side by side blocking the road. It's so <laughs> iconic, isn't it? Just everything about it as a European makes you want to go there. Mm. <laughs> And the minute he arrives in New York City, it's, it's those things that you see at street level, like the overhead railway and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And um, I really loved that moment where he sells his car. Yeah, yeah. And you hear the organ from Shea Stadium. Yeah, yeah. And then you get this pan across Shea Stadium yeah, that's to right. the organist, and you think it's going to be a scene there. He'll, he'll go and visit a game mm. because he's in America, but then it's, it's just a little interlude. Yeah, but I mean, I think what he's doing there is just sh- saying that there's so many stories hidden in... America, you know, everybody has their story. That's really nice that that's something you got from the film, because that's something I got from it this time as well, for the first time. Especially now that decades have passed and a lot of people that you see in the film are probably, you know, dead. Yeah, sure. Not so much for the New York stuff, but definitely when we're in Europe and there's a lot of um, scenes driving around and you see people just... Yeah, but I think that's part of what the film is saying as well, that Europe, you know, can, you know, offer as interesting a world for storytelling as the states you know mm. the states shouldn't be the only source of cinematic storytelling for the audience's palette you know there's, there's, there's so many more options we should be looking more globally but i was thinking just in human terms i was watching passers-by in some of the long takes in the streets in in germany mm-hmm. and thinking you know these are real people who the camera's just passing and yeah, they have yeah. their, you know they have this is just like a, a fraction of their lives that we're seeing on screen yeah, yeah. and they live out entire lives and it gives you like a sense of humanity yeah yeah there's that um, and it's that capturing of, of real time not in a documentary sense but as part of a narrative but capturing real people and real environments and real sort of snapshots of actual reality there's that exhilarating moment when uh, there's a little three or four year old boy on a push bike in his nappy mm. and he just races along the, the pavement staring at the camera yeah and moving at really high speed and it's nicely cut with shots of Alice looking out of the window, so it feels very knitted into the scene. But that little boy's expression and the yeah. speed that he's moving at is, yeah, it's really exhilarating. I love mm. all those little details. Yeah, I'd say the, the first act kind of wraps up with Philip entering the Pan Am building to book a flight back to Germany. There's a strike on, isn't there? So he can't go direct. He has to go via Amsterdam. Yeah. That Pan Am building is, is one of those buildings that I really love historically because that's where they used to land helicopters on the top of Mm. if you were flying into new york in a chopper you would land on the pan am building (laughs) until one went over the edge and crashed into the street and after that they stopped all helicopter flights Mm. into manhattan so it's (laughs) for me it's a really iconic building i've shown my my little boy pictures of the helicopter crash just just to sort of yeah draw his attention to that particular building Mm. So we meet Alice and Lisa. Philip meets Alice in the revolving doors in a little aside as he's going to the building. Yeah, I read, uh, was it Alison Anders made a note for Criterion and she was saying that 
this scene tells you all you need to know about the film that mm. you know the, the child takes control of the narrative because she takes control of the door and mm. from then on we see the film pretty much or the world of the film through her eyes because he plays a little joke and plays along and kind of mm. goes round and round yeah, the revolving yeah. door and she's quite taken with him from that point on isn't she yeah it's she? nice yeah there's a nice sort of one-two shot of them looking at each other and it's mm. like oh welcome to the game <laughs> throughout the film she's kind of I mean you don't want to reduce it to kind of like movie characterization stereotypes but she is sort of hasn't had a, a steady father figure throughout her life yeah that's it and she is kind of impressed with anybody who could, who could be that you imagine the other men that have been in her life are interested in her mother whereas Philip seems to be interested in like her like as a, eventually as a friend you know yeah. it's, it's just I think a nice change for her and it's there's that really nice point um right towards the end of the film where they meet that young woman in in the park when they've been swimming oh yeah and go back to her flat and then there's that um, scene where Alice is kind of left alone in the kitchen and yeah. you can hear the laughter from Philip and the woman in the other room and it's just that kind of slight disappointment of you know I've been I've been shut out of adult life he's yeah, part yeah. of adult life and I'm not part of it anymore but, but that's counterpointed nicely with the, the scene in the morning where Alice gets up She's looking at the Polaroid, or not the Polaroid, she's looking at the film strip that they took in the um, photo booth mm. and then gets him out of bed and says, come on, let's go, <laughs> let's let's get out of here. Like, you've had your fun, now let's get back on the road. It's really nice. I think the scene in the Pan Am building belongs to Lisa Kreutzer. Yeah. To, to, to build a character within, what, four or five lines of dialogue mm. and performance is just, that's remarkable work. Yeah, yeah, and she seems very fresh, especially compared to the the girl working on on the, mm. on the counter, who feels very wooden and kind of threatens to upend the scene. And then, yeah, Lisa comes in and just really brings it to life. Mm. So Phillips helped Lisa and Alice book their flights home, and they've got like twenty four hours to kill or something. Twenty four hours before the next flight, and they can't go directly to Germany. They have to go via Amsterdam because of a strike. Lisa says, "I want yeah. you to just stay with us. I can keep bear his company. It. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Just stay. Yeah." There's what seemed initially to me a, a very odd scene when I was watching this the second time around. This time, um, where it's just Alice and Lisa alone in the diner, whilst Philip's off making a phone call to his friend, and it seemed odd because it's the only scene in the movie where Philip isn't. It's not from Philip's point of view, and Philip's not central to the scene. Yeah, but I think it's that moment when Lisa and Alice are together, and Alice says, "You know." What does he want from us? Which I think is probably, considering all the other men in her life have probably been her mother's lovers, mm. <laughs> the fact that Lisa is just saying, look, he's just a nice guy, he's helping us, he doesn't want anything. And I think her intuition is that he's trustworthy, that he's decent. You know, we've seen, as an audience, we've seen nothing in his character that would lead us to believe otherwise. And considering the rest of the film, his uh, a man and a child together you mm. know i think we need to believe that he's decent uh, after philip has been to see angela his friend in new york and who's told him he can't spend the night he's told him he can't spend <laughs> the night clothes he back was, on and get as out, he was yeah. kind of presumptuously expecting to mm. he goes back to the hotel to stay with uh, alice and lisa um lisa's quite pleased to see him and suggests he stays he, i, I kind of get the feeling he thinks he might be on a promise here yeah i think so she sort of says unequivocally you know yeah. you can share you can the bed but, but, yeah and the next morning, Lisa leaves very early. Philip kind of pretends to be asleep and not to notice, but he notices. There's a really nice moment, which I think... People never talk about male loneliness in movies, but mm -hmm. Philip is lonely. Yeah, definitely. Um, and there's a really nice moment when Lisa leaves, and he kind of realises how early it is, grabs her pillow to, 
to kind of have two pillows to sleep mm. on and then you can smell you can, you can smell, smell her on the yeah, pillow yeah, and just kind of has this a really nice little moment i really like it that she's um she's disappeared left a note for him saying meet me at the empire state building left him with this child all of this kind of overwhelming reality first thing in the morning and he just goes back to bed he's just like oh i'm gonna deal with this in about an hour <laughs> there to meet lisa at the empire state building we're just bullet pointing lovely things but there's um a point of view shot through the viewfinder yeah, yeah. as alice is looking through which again you know you st- all these things just kind of flow over you the first time you watch it but the mm. second time it's like the way that it's following following the bird through the sky is just yeah, lovely yeah, that's it. yeah the yeah. freedom of a bird moving through all that structure mm. yeah, i love uh when they realise that Lisa isn't turning up and he says, let's just go to the airport. I love the way Alice just takes out a chewing gum and throws it over her shoulder and like <laughs> off the end of the Empire State Building. It just really made me laugh. It was such a kind of realistic thing for a child to do at that moment. Just like, oh, fuck it. There's lots of really nice bits, especially in this sort of end of first act, beginning of second act thing, where you do flag up all the stuff that Alice does as a child. She's not some mm. sort of you know adult in a child's body. Yeah, that's I it. I really love the bit where they're on the bus out of New York and he's yeah, kind of yeah, like yeah. Pointing, pointing out the view and she says, oh, I saw all that on the way here. Yeah, she's that's just it. Looking, she's seen it all. Looking yeah. at her lap and watching, you know, paying to watch crap TV in the airport. Yeah, yeah, sort of yeah. There's something about her kind of looking for screens, which, I mean, you know, 30, 40, 45 years later, you know, that culture of children looking for screens as a way of detaching from you know the mundane reality is you know mm. something we see everywhere now it's yeah. prevalent and the little selfish things that 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 children say like you know he comes over to see her when she's at cr- watching crap tv mm-hmm. and she says can't you get me something to eat yeah, <laughs> yeah do your job grown-up feed me and there's a lot of there's a lot of nice details in this about about boredom and dead space and stuff i did like the the mood of the amsterdam stuff it's that kind of anxiety and, and boredom of being somewhere in the middle of your journey, mm-hmm. like interim places. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I suppose it's like limbo, ex- isn't it? Those hours between flights and yeah, stuff. Yeah, he doesn't even want to leave the hotel, does he, in Amsterdam? <laughs> He's just like, let's stay here, and she eventually talks him into it. Yeah, they have a, a grumpy day bickering in Amsterdam. She lived there before, I think, because she speaks a little bit of Dutch and mm. is, is interpreting for him. There's a scene which I think we should discuss, if we can, at some point. Um, in the hotel in Amsterdam, um, Philip's taking a bath, um, and Alice wanders in and sits down, and they chat. It's, I think it's one of the scenes that would just never get made these days. Yeah, but you have to look at that scene from the perspective of a nine-year-old, and you know, I've got an eight-year-old son, and you know, he has no respect for <laughs> other people's privacy, and it's not anything other than we all live in the same space, and that's how children are. You know, the, the only thing. Alice wants in that scene is for him to get out of the bath and get out of the bathroom because she needs a poo and she doesn't want to do that in front of him but it's totally fine that he's in the bath naked like it doesn't even because children aren't sexual so Mm. us as adults we're very conscious of our genitals and and their use and sharing them with strangers is something you know well depending on the type of night you're having but you know not something we generally do yeah my notes are getting sketchier and sketchier as this goes on because i feel the film kind of front loads its themes and sets you up with these characters and then just yeah. allows them to thaw out yeah exactly it's exactly that yeah so you and that's know, one of its biggest pleasures isn't it you know yeah. I, th- I think yeah all, all of those existential thoughts that you have at the beginning with Philip to just free yourself of those and to live in the moment it's such a hard thing to do and Alice enables that in him and also I think she's maybe learning to 
trust the integrity of a male role not, model? I guess or? not having spent a great deal of time with one. Yeah, yeah, that's it. One to one, really, without mm. a mother's intervention, their yeah, mother yeah. being the centre of attention. Mm. One of my favourite moments in this is when Philip gets a haircut. Yeah, yeah, Mr. yeah. <laughs> and it's just for, that. For what it's worth, you can't really tell he's had a haircut, can you? Well, it does look terribly, terribly blow dried mm-hmm. immediately afterwards on the bus. But I do like, you know, that that appeals to my vanity as well. In the days when I used to be quite specific about haircuts, yeah, yeah. for it to go wrong and for it to mm. be in the hands of a child who's not really paying attention, yeah, yeah. it's really funny. In terms of the kind of pivot point for the uh, second act, we have Lisa's no show at the airport, which leaves the characters to sort of determine what their path is they either just stay at the airport waiting for her to turn up or they track down alice's grandparents and and dump her there and it's a good kind of midpoint for philip as well because at this point he's still a little bit frustrated and fed up and he's it's not one of those he's scenes. running out of patience yeah with the situation is he? yeah he's running out of patience and he doesn't really kind of understand how alice would be feeling as well mm-hmm. how distraught she might be yeah yeah uh, and it's only when she, even when she runs off to the toilets and locks herself in crying, he's still a little bit impatient with her. Mm-hmm. It's a really nice moment, though, where he sort of has to find his compassion. Mm-hmm. And he sits outside of the toilet door and says, like, do you remember where your grandparents live? Is it this town? <laughs> this town? And he basically runs down the list of every single town in Germany until he gets to, like, W and it's Wuppertal, isn't it? <laughs> A tiny little aside, but I did like Philip picking his nose when he was waiting outside the toilet. Oh, yeah, okay. Vendors and Vogler do, do the whole range of, of bodily stuff. There's, there's a scene in Kings of the Road where he takes a poo on camera. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. It's in a wide shot. Wow. But it's just like, yeah, this is one of the things human beings do yeah, yeah. That, that we can put in movies. Yeah, yeah, you don't often see it in a <laughs> film, do you? Should we talk about the arrival at Wuppertal? Because that the elevated railway is one of those cinematic surprises that I just wasn't anticipating and as we sat on the train with them mm. looking out of the back window as it moves away from the station and you realise it's a, it's like it's a, a suspended monorail, suspended it? yeah uh, railway over a river and just this shot gets wider and wider and you see this like beautiful kind of industrial sculptural shape in this small German town like uh, it was one of my uh, right. I need to pause the film now. This is so. <laughs> what is this? I've never seen this before. I've never heard of it. I had to do a little bit of research on on the the railway. D- did you look at anything? No, about no. The I railway? just thought it was a really nice shot. Oh, I love it. I love it so much. That railway is the Wuppertal and Schwebebahn, which is the world's oldest electric elevated railway, and was opened in 1901. Mm. And there's some really nice pictures of it from around about 1917. It looks so futuristic in this kind of, I want to say Victorian, obviously it's German, so it would be Kaiser, whatever era. But yeah, it looks like um, You Let Me Luther Arkwright, and it looks like that. You know, it looks so out of place, and you expect like zeppelins and flying pedal bikes and all sorts of strange things. It looks so cool. And they still have the um, the Kaiser's original carriage that you can still rent out and run along the track it's still operational now and if you look at it on wikipedia there's there's been a few like accidents somebody drove a crane into it um but there's one where it collapsed into the into the river and the pictures are so dramatic sounds (laughs) remarkable yeah yeah i have put it on my like destination wish list (laughs) for next time kind of if i'm ever in germany wandering around 
to detour to Wappenthalen to see the railway hunt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really long. And in every shot where it's in the background, I find those really pleasurable. Yeah. When you see it just like cruising across, it's like, yeah, wow, it's a, so sci fi. Pan across, isn't it, mm. as it, as it goes around a corner? Day, night, dusk, dawn, whenever <laughs> you see the railway, I'm very happy. I like, doesn't it run outside the window of the hotel yeah, as yeah, well? Yeah, yeah, that'd be great, wouldn't it? It's so cool. I, I really <laughs> love it. And it's only 13 kilometers long as well, one track. Mm. Apparently, Vin Vendors shot some of Pina there, his dance film. Oh, the 3D thing. Yeah, mm. but yeah, I never saw that. I think because this was very loosely scripted and shot chronologically, and by Vendors' own admission, they were kind of improvising a lot of mm. it, and they abandoned the script and would allow themselves to improvise a lot. You don't have that carefully scripted, you know, oh, well, he was selfish, but now he is gradually softening, and you get these key mm. scenes. Um, so even when you get a moment like where they're staying in a hotel, and Alice has been crying, and Philip is still impatient with her about her mm-hmm. crying, but then he kind of softens. So it's, it's but he does, he does tell her to shut up, like you do when you're really frustrated with a kid, instead <laughs> of just saying, look, I'm very tired now. You've, we've had a long day. Could you please just, like, calm it down? He just says, like, shut up! And then she <laughs> covers the her head with the blankets, and then uh, he tells her a story, which is another good kind of improvised moment because it's one of those stories where he's just waffling <laughs> and I really like that that he isn't you know uh, pulling something out of his yeah. own childhood and telling her his favourite bedtime story he's just making this up and it's really sort of uh, fractured and you know unpredictable and then she just falls asleep just by the sound of his talking and mm. yeah he sort of looks a bit satisfied with himself he's very pleased he? with himself yeah. for having done that yeah so in this kind of longer last act of the movie, the long scene searching in a car is where you start to see it's it's quite odd. As I was saying before, you know, obviously there's stuff in New York and having seen New York iconography and mm. having been to New York, you, you'd think that stuff would be, you'd warm to that more. And But I, I found it's the stuff driving around in Germany that I warmed to more that I was looking at the people and places and thinking it's, it's yeah, real yeah. people, real places. Exactly. The old couple he stops to ask a question of. And... Yeah, well, there's there's an interesting little aside there because they talk about um, Krupp, you know, all these old houses that are traditional houses that have been there for a hundred years or so. They talk about, uh, all he says is... Uh, Krupp wants to build a yeah, hospital. Or yeah, that's right. And so the Krupp family were the, the family that basically supplied all the weapons for... The, the Reich mm. they're a huge like uh, um, dynasty of German industrialists that have been supplying weapons to both sides in most wars <laughs> and uh, you know are part of the the fabric of German culture mm. um, so I think that is Wender's little moment where he's acknowledging some of the German history with it and trying to counterpoint yeah the, the, you know the more traditional Bavarian history, let's say, with more recent Reich history. 20th century. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's it. I found the can music really came into its own here with the the driving around, especially yeah. the scenes of Alice kind of watching from the car and falling asleep a bit and coming yeah, to, yeah. and that kind of looping guitar refrain really. Mm. Those are really nice because you you know would later find out that her granny doesn't live in this town. So <laughs> as you watch, you think that she'd be more alert looking for that, and you realise, oh wait a second. Mm. And there's the the fabulous scene. It's the I think it's the key scene that everyone kind of references from this movie in the uh, Ital Ice Cafe, mm-hmm. where the little kid's sitting by the jukebox yeah, singing yeah. along to Canned Heat. Yeah, yeah, it's so nice. Just... he's not even singing, is he? He's just like humming the med- melody mm. and just doing on the road again. Yeah, it's like he's heard it a thousand times. But it's the mood of the movie, though, yeah, isn't yeah. it? It's that kind of drifting, drifting in and out feeling. 
on the road again mm -hmm. commenting on Philip's predicament he's yeah, on the yeah. road again yeah <laughs> it's nice yeah but there's nothing wrong with any of the detail in that scene you know like where when Alice does confess that they're in the wrong town and she doesn't know where she is mm -hmm. <laughs> and then uh, Philip excuses himself looks at himself in the mirror comes back and it's just like okay I'm going to take you to the police like he just realises <laughs> it's ridiculous that he's running around with a nine year old girl on a wild goose chase mm. And just, you know, has to kind of unburden himself. Yeah. So he drops her at the police station, and then he has a little moment of freedom. But it's interesting, when he comes out of the police station, there's no kind of exaltation. He's just kind of a bit loose and yeah. aimless and sees the Chuck Berry poster. Yeah, but I think he was sort of, you know, enjoying the companionship as well, and mm. how, you know, uncomplicated it is to a certain extent to be hanging around with somebody so innocent and in the moment. Did you hear the story about this Chuck Berry footage? Yeah, so apparently they did shoot some footage of Chuck Berry at the concert, but he couldn't get it cleared. Yeah. So he went to Pennebaker and decolorized some footage of Chuck Berry that they had. Mm. But it was all about the song, wasn't it? Memphis, Tennessee, isn't it? What's yeah, it called? which is a song Chuck Berry wrote when he was trying to reconnect with his own daughter. I again, not, you know, same I, way. Didn't, I yeah. didn't know that one. Yeah, yeah, um, really sort of underpinning again the narrative, yeah. Yeah, as, as you highlighted before. But this footage and the scene that Vendors makes out of it mm -hmm. is one of my favourite things of all time. Yeah. It never gets old. I always laugh out loud at, mm. the, at the expression on Chuck Berry's face when he when the music finally comes back in time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's having a nice time, isn't he? He looks pretty yeah. happy. It doesn't even matter that, you know, you can see the difference in the film stocks and the grain mm. and, you know... And in the edit, that should be seamless, but it's really jarring. But yeah, but, but it's you, you know, just have to give it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's just really fun. It's, it's there's a funny thing about this scene. I'm not a fan of fifties, early sixties rock and roll, mm. but this is this is the one time, perhaps the only one time, seeing rock and roll being played live that I can appreciate how spiky and energetic and and raw it is. Oh yeah, sure. Especially it's, it's imagine a, the era as well. What the yeah. rest of the kind of the menu looked like. But it's the only time I can I can I can hear rock and roll and think how exciting it must have been for mm -hmm. people and and kind of understand that experience because a lot of the time it's just it's just like a closed book to me. Yeah, I sure. hear it and I just think it's yeah. just like. You know. But you have to appreciate the historical context. Oh, you? absolutely, and I do. But uh, when I'm watching this, it's it's the it's the first appreciation I can have for the raw experience. Of yeah, it right, think, right. Ah, yeah, I get that now. Mm -hmm. You see Chuck Berry kind of sweating and happy yeah, and loose yeah. and energetic yeah and, yeah definitely and I don't know if I'm reading too much into the scene but I know that Philip's enjoying himself but I do get the feeling that he's wary of disappearing back into himself again it's just like a, a sort of pause for reflection in one of his reaction shots yeah I mean the next scene is Alice has done a bunk from the police station tracked him down been dodging police and jumps into the car next to him and his face lights yeah. up, doesn't it? He isn't like, What are you doing here? You should be like he's just so happy to see her and mm. she's and she remembers where Granny lives and it's a few towns over, so he's like, Let's go before we get caught, you know, they're on the run, aren't they? Mm. It's a really nice kind of kind of moment. I did like um the sequence where Alice is talking about all the little notes that she gave the police officers about where her granny lived and she said when 
my granny used to read bedtime stories there would be coal dust coming through the window and settling on the pages making the pages rustle and I was mm. like wow that's like so <laughs> visual isn't it like mm. the detail that a child would be distracted by when they're supposed to be paying attention to the story they're looking at the, these other things I thought that was a really nice moment yeah, it's so typical of the of the things that you remember as a child though mm-hmm. isn't it those little vivid background things that never leave you mm-hmm. but yeah I've, I've just got you know like a real cliffs notes thing of I, I liked seeing the suburbs i like driving around the suburbs and seeing the types of houses yeah, yeah. and the kid on the bike i mean yeah, i'm just yeah. i'm just enjoying being in the movie now yeah, yeah, rather definitely. than analyzing it as a piece of filmmaking yeah for sure the photo booth scene oh that's so nice isn't yeah. it yeah, <laughs> where they keep sideways glancing at each other to see what expression they're pulling the moment when they find the house is just like a little minor miracle yeah isn't that's it? brilliant yeah <laughs> Yeah, and then he's just looking at the photo of the house and looking at the space and it's like wow that's, we're here that's exactly right and there is something like oh no that was a bit easy a bit quick and then of course you know Granny's left the house doesn't live there anymore um, watching it for the last time I, I, I don't mean timeless in the sense of an all time classic I mean it's, it's a timeless movie where uh, for example I, w- I was thinking that the scene that we're about to talk about where Alice and Philip go swimming and meet a, meet a woman in the park who takes them back to the, to her apartment and mm-hmm. they stay over. I think it's way earlier in the film, but it's like the penultimate scene. Yeah, yeah, we're but you just, close to the end, aren't we? Because you don't have that traditional story structure and you're just happy following these people along. Yeah, yeah, but this, this is where it is a road movie where it's characters on a journey just meeting people who are in and out of their lives very quickly. There's a couple of things about the scene with a very pleasant woman her apartment kitchen did remind me this is a very specific <laughs> age related thing it did remind me of the 70s but not the contemporary 70s i i used to have elder relatives oh yeah okay who lived in a small house in kent um and you know the appliances in their kitchen weren't from the 70s they were from like the 60s yeah, yeah, yeah. possibly the early 60s late 50s mm-hmm. and it's that kind of hangover of quite clunky looking things yeah, and yeah. surroundings mm. I remember my mum had a washing machine that she still used tongs to lift stuff out. <laughs> and there's the thing that I that I mentioned before, it's, it's quite a good scene for Alice because you get to see her having to spend more enforced time in the kitchen alone mm. from the adult world, which Phillips rejoined. And she feels, you know, you can see she feels not angry or upset, but just, you know, that mild, yeah, probably also, continual disappointment through her yeah, life, which it. has been it's, excluded. It's not unfamiliar to her to be pushed to the peripheries. Mm. while the adults enjoy themselves and then suddenly we're in pretty much the last two scenes of the film Philip and Alice are on a ferry over to stay with his parents because he's run out of money uh, and one of the policemen from the station has caught up with them I wonder if he wasn't on his way to Philip's parents anyway that's probably why he's on the ferry because they're like trying to track them down mm. and it's not a fractious angry exchange is it no it's really funny they're and both he, giggling and, all the way through it and he, he asks him you know why, why didn't you come to the police and contact us and Philip's like yeah I guess but you know without saying it the thing was he was just kind mm. of enjoying yeah, a little, yeah, an adventure an interlude yeah, yeah yeah you could imagine you know if they hadn't been intercepted that he would sort of accidentally adopt her at some point <laughs> when Alice points out to Philip in this in this scene oh you haven't taken any pictures for a while mm-hmm. and he, re- he realizes he hasn't he's been having experiences and yeah he's been enjoying living, them rather yeah. than trying to trying to evoke them in, in yeah he's not once removed from life mm. he's he's in in the world that's, that's i think that scene where they're doing the 
aerobics or whatever it is by the side of the road that's one of those nice moments where they're just completely existing mm. without any conscious thought they're just there doing it it's sort of sad when it comes to an end isn't it when the cop catches up with them and it's just like dude you know she needs to go back to her family and you know that everyone's sort of laughing and smiling about how ridiculous the situation is but as a member of the audience watching it, it's like oh that's a shame yeah could have done with another half an hour of this adventure now that they're really in a good good kind of place the friendship is well established i could have done with half an hour more of just seeing what adventures they were going to have well it does it does give you a nice little reprise at the end when, yeah yeah when totally. they, they get to take the train journey into, into is it going to berlin they're going to uh munich i think yeah and um yeah i love that little reveal on alice's like emergency money <laughs> that she's got a hundred dollar bill tucked into the back of her kind of purse that she's been wearing around her neck mm. through the whole film and she gives it to him so that he can buy a ticket and come with her mm. on that final part of the journey. But it's not for the sake of an emotional fare or anything. They just want to spend... Yeah, that's just, it. Just sit quietly. He can read his paper. Yeah, she can do it's going to be another three hours or something, isn't yeah. it? So, yeah, let's let's take that moment. But, yeah, she gives him that opportunity to just have a bit more time. Mm. And it finishes on one of those hats-off technical moments. Yeah, yeah. Helicopter shot. Starts well, also, zoom. in terms of the script, I think there's that really nice thing where... Uh, she says to him, you know, what are you going to do when you get to Munich? And he says, I'm going to finish this story. Mm. And then he says to her, what are you going to do? And she just has that look on her face like, I don't know. You know <laughs> but also she's never been and probably still isn't the architect of her own destiny. You yeah. know? She's tied to whatever whim her mum is acting on once mm. she gets reunited. And then they just stand up at the window, don't they? And yeah. let the wind blow through their hair as they face the future it's it really nice man i was i was quite moved by the time we get to this last little little moment yeah and like it's, i say it's a, it's a very cool helicopter I, shot I, I shudder to think of the the walkie talkie coordination involved in getting a helicopter in the right place at the right time and locating the right window to <laughs> yeah, get the zoom yeah. on and oh man so anyone anyone who can do that now mm. yeah choppering out to that super wide of the landscape yeah, it's perfect. It's a perfect ending. Really satisfying. And it's, you know, it's nice because it's not the end of their journeys, their stories, but that's as much as we need to see. Mm. So I was really pleased and mildly surprised that watching it again, out of the context that I saw it in originally, when I was, you know, hungry for world cinema and looking for new flavours and experiences mm -hmm. and, and this kind of like, slow not not meditative or contemplative but real time i mean obviously it's constructed filmmaking but it feel you know you feel more like you're living life in real time when oh, you're yeah, watching totally. it i was interested and a little bit worried to see if i'd still be able to enjoy that because without without wanting to basically my attention span is is fucked these days <laughs> for one reason or another so I, I i worried that i wouldn't have the attention span and i wouldn't enjoy it but it was really nice and it's made me want to watch you know the other two movies in in the trilogy yeah yeah i'm gonna track those down and a few other wim wenders films for sure but i think with this you know the technique is there mm. you know the, the pictures are there the characterizations are there the confidence in the direction is there all of the spaces that they move through are really visual i just think it's, it's it's a really great piece of cinema you know i've watched quite a few of the 2020 oscar nominated movies and found them quite stodgy and 
a few things on Netflix equally as stodgy, some just like dampened by obvious technique and this just felt so refreshing again it's, it felt like I don't know I can't even think of a tasty metaphor for how refreshing it was to watch it it's like no, it's, I can't think of, I was going to say like they're jumping into a bath of lemonade or something <laughs> do you know what I mean like something can't just can't think of anything that doesn't demean how refreshing yeah it was to watch this and feel like ah oh, this is really great cinema I'm I'm I mean, I've I've seen it before, which maybe explains why I'm not as exuberant as you are about it. But <laughs> not it stripping is... off for my lemonade bar. <laughs> but it it is definitely a not first film. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? It's one of those films where the directors had enough experience yeah. to do some hit and miss stuff first. Like it's like the perfect second or third movie. It's almost like he's finished his apprenticeship. Yeah. And and found his voice. And this is supposed to be the first in a trilogy of vendors road movies is that yeah, right have you seen the other two yes I have it wasn't mapped out as a trilogy but he made another two road movies following Wrong Movement and is it King of the Road Kings, Kings of, of the, the road. road well that's the UK title the actual German title is in the, is more like In the Course of Time oh, right, okay. which again I want to watch again I'm not as fond of those two as I was of Alice but I'm, I'm really keen to see um, Kings of the Road again I think maybe I'm more ready for that than I was when I was 19 oh yeah okay and yeah I do I, I I haven't seen Paris, Texas for a long time. I want to go and see that again. It's, it's a it's a very good double bill with Alice in the Cities, as in I mean, it's a different adult child relationship, but it's it's another adult child road movie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as we've been saying, I think we've covered a lot of the um, truth of the film, which is enjoying the moments when they're there. Oh, well, it's good. We've covered the themes in the moment, right? Yeah, than that's the... <laughs> it. Yeah, yeah. As as now, as we get a bit retrospective, I think we realised that yeah, we were there. For me, it's an, a new discovery and like a really welcome experience. I think I'm gonna, like I mentioned before, pick up the Blu-ray. I mean, I'm I'm pleased because I used to have it. As I said, I used to have it in my top ten films list, and one of my, well, you know, I have to broaden beyond ten films now. But it's definitely still one of my favourite films, and it's nice to to have that refreshed. Hmm. I I think you know I wouldn't recommend it blindly to everyone. I think I would have to give it some context and say you know do do can you do this? Can you enjoy a movie that's paced this way and there's this gentle but with that caveat that's yeah I, I love it I'd recommend it to most people yeah me too and I just think it was it's one of those things that is like when you watch a film that is life affirming that's about the joy of just living and experiencing life you know it's not very often a filmmaker can do that without stepping too far either way you know mm. making it too dramatic or too saccharine i think this just was so perfectly judged and life life affirming i just think it's like a really well measured well judged beautifully crafted piece of piece of film I, I, yeah i'm really happy to have discovered it and to do whatever i can to share it mm. with uh, with the world mm.